Have you ever fought with God? Have you ever fought with God? Have you ever had the deep sense of conviction that God wanted you to do something and you just wanted to tell Him no? Very often, when God begins to convict your heart and my heart of sin or to call you to obedience, we don't want to hear His voice. And I can give you a very personal example of this. I remember... As an eight-year-old little boy, when I was coming under conviction that I needed to be saved, that Jesus loved me, died for me, rose from the dead, and that if I came to him and confessed my sin, that he would forgive me, welcome me into the family of God. I remember feeling like I can't become a Christian because then people will know That I'm a sinner. And I had this great eight-year-old reputation as a good little Christian church boy. Even though I didn't actually know the Lord yet. And I remember feeling the pull of God in my heart. And wanting to resist it. Wanting to tell God no. In order to hide the fact from other people. That I was really a sinner. And that's just one example. If that's true in the life of an eight-year-old boy, how much more true is it for us who are adults, who have learned to hide our flaws, to hide from our sins, who have our own plans for life, so that when God calls you to something different, when God calls you to a place of obedience, it's tempting to say, no, that, that doesn't fit in with what I want right now. When God calls you to confess a sin in your life, say, no, God, I I don't want to admit to that. I don't want anybody to know. This morning for scripture reading, we read from Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 19. And that passage is about Jesus and John the Baptist. The reality is, for many of us, the desire to tell God no leads to to an attempt to discredit or dismiss the voice of God in our lives. And in that passage, Jesus says, concerning the generation that was alive when he was on earth, that they would not listen to God no matter how God spoke to them. John was, of course, a a fiery prophet. He preached repentance and he preached with conviction. He called a spade a spade. He was not afraid to confront anyone. He was rigid. He was strict. He fasted. People said that guy has a demon. He's crazy. God is not that harsh. So they didn't listen to him. Even though he did speak for God. By contrast... Jesus came eating and drinking. And they said that he was a glutton and a drunkard. People didn't listen to either one of them. Even though they both spoke for God. And of course, Jesus actually is God. Very often, the problem is not the message or the way the message is delivered. It's with our own hearts. And our desire 
to disobey God, to dismiss what he has said. And this is because our hearts naturally are hard like Pharaoh's. This morning, we're going to see what his heart looks like in the pages of Exodus. So today we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 7 and 8. And we will see Pharaoh remains hardened and tells God no. And he shows us three different ways that people tell God no. They attempt to dismiss and discredit what God has said. They attempt to work around the things that God has done and the consequences that sin takes. And then finally, they get to a place where they just ignore God. This is exactly what Pharaoh does. As we see the consequences of his sin, as God strikes Egypt with the first three of the ten plagues that we're going to see, my prayer today is simple. That God would help us to recognize our sins and to repent. Pharaoh shows us what it looks like to fight against God, and I believe that we can each see ourselves in his actions And my prayer is that we would not be like him. That the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and move us to repentance. And actually, I would like to to pray for just a moment right now. So let me pray for us all. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear you now. We pray that you would open our hearts. That you would let us love the truth and see the light. We pray that you would move us to genuine joyful repentance where we enjoy the good fellowship of who you are. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Before we go to the text today, I want to answer a question that will affect the next three messages as we look through the first of the nine plagues of Egypt and then we're going to look at the tenth plague by itself. The natural question for all of these supernatural plagues is, are they miracles? Are they not miracles? And I just called them supernatural, so you already know what I think. The reality is, as you look at different commentaries and as you look at what different people have said through history, there is a strong temptation to dismiss what God did in the Exodus. And so, for example, I'll mention... Nova on PBS ran a special in 2008 and then they reran the same special in 2012 that tried to find the history behind the myth. So in other words, they're saying what the scripture tells you is not actually true, but there must be some small historical root to this myth. So what really happened? Did the plagues happen in any capacity? And you find a number of people try to formulate different naturalistic explanations for what took place in Egypt. And they say that the the Israelites just adapted what happened and created their own story, their own myth out of it to define who they were as a people. So I'll give you a couple examples. People say that when the river became blood, what actually happened is that red algae that naturally occurs in the water just had the perfect conditions to multiply. And so it bloomed and it caused the Nile to appear red. Or, some people don't like that explanation. Some people say it just happened to be a particular type of red clay that washed up through the Nile as it flooded, as it does every year. And so again, it appeared to be blood, but it actually was just clay. 
Or they'll attribute the frogs to the natural population boom that occurs every single year. And they just say this year was particularly bad. The problem is a miracle is by definition something that does not happen naturally. And a natural explanation completely ignores what the Bible says. So if you go this route, you are saying the word of God is not true and I will not accept it in my life. You are demonstrating that you have a heart just like Pharaoh's. Let me point out a few verses in this test that makes this crystal clear that the Bible claims that God supernaturally did these things. So first, chapter 7, verse 17. Scripture says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. Notice, the Nile turning to blood happens at the exact time Moses strikes the river with his staff. Do we really think that he just had somebody downstream with a radio or something and sent him a smoke signal? Hey, the algae are coming. I need you to hit the river with your staff right now so you can make it look like this is God. No. God demonstrates who he is and his supernatural power by controlling the exact time. Furthermore, God says this is evidence that he is God. Control over when it happens shows that it's not natural. And a natural event that the Egyptians saw every year, if they had seen these algae or if they had seen clay wash up like this, it would have given no evidence whatsoever that God even existed, let alone that he was speaking through Moses on behalf of his people. Chapter 8, verse 2 says, If you refuse, I will plague all of your country with frogs. God says he is the one who controls the frogs. He is the one who brings this plague. And notice it's contingent on whether or not Pharaoh refuses. God says this plague comes as a result of his disobedience. Not because the Nile happened to flood. Not because it was particularly wet. Not because breeding conditions were just right and predators were low. Because he brought it as a result of Pharaoh's refusal. Same thing in in verse 5, it shows that that this is tied to God's prophetic word spoken through Moses. Stretch out your hand and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So God is validating his prophetic messenger by doing this sign through Moses and Aaron. Scripture shows Aaron performing this miracle. And if it happened naturally then this is nothing more than a hoax and Moses and Aaron are charlatans. The Bible says the same thing about the gnats. Stretch out your staff. This is in verse 16 of chapter 8. Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. In other words, if you do not do this, if you do not stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, then that dust will just remain dust. This isn't something that would have happened anyway. But in obedience to the word of God, Moses and Aaron follow God's instructions and God works through them to perform these signs and wonders. And any explanation that attributes these miracles to natural causes really calls God a cheat and a liar. It steals from his glory and his power. At every step of the way, when God says, by this you will know that I am the Lord, 
appealing to these natural explanations, says, no, we don't really believe that God is the Lord. We don't believe that God was at work in the Exodus. And we think it could be explained without him. If that's your approach to the scriptures today, let me warn you that what happened to Pharaoh will happen to you. I believe this kind of natural explanation fosters a temptation for us to ignore God's power in our own lives. This is not just a historical question of what happened four four millennia ago. This is a question of, does God work in my life, in your life? Does God speak through his word? Do I need to listen to his voice? And by dismissing what God did in Exodus as nothing more than weather and nature running its natural course, it becomes possible to say that there's no need for us to deal directly with God because he doesn't really act in history and he probably doesn't act today. This is the exact sort of lie that the Apostle Peter warned would come before the return of Christ. As Peter wrote in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise that Jesus will return? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, by saying things just continue on the way they always have, pretending that God doesn't really do things like turning rivers to blood, burying a country in frogs, or filling the air with gnats, by saying God doesn't do these things, they're saying that he will not intervene in our time, that Jesus won't really come, Because God has never acted in history. But the Bible tells us that he has acted in history. That he does do these things. And so by looking at these plagues. By taking them seriously as acts of God. My hope is that we will be reminded of the real power of God. And that we will seek him now and urge others to do the same. This is a giant warning. God is real. God acts in history. And one day we will all give account before him. So be ready. Pharaoh's actions and the consequences of those actions are a warning of what it looks like to fight a losing war with God. And so let's make sure that none of us are like him. Let me urge you to look at the text together beginning in Exodus chapter 7 verses 14 through 25. And I want to encourage you take your Bible turn there with me. So up until this point in this message, I've been dealing with a big question. Are these plagues real? Did God do this? And the scripture says, yes, they are miracles. Now, with that said, let's go to the text and look at Pharaoh's heart and ask God to speak to us today to see if any of us have a heart like his. So Exodus chapter seven, we're going to look at verses 14 through 25 together. Exodus chapter seven, verses 14 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, 
Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, and so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So my first point for today is a sign ignored, Pharaoh works around God. A sign ignored, Pharaoh works around God. Last week, we talked about the first thing a hard heart does is it fails to listen. Now we see the second thing a hard heart does is it refuses to obey So as a consequence for his sin, in order to demonstrate to Pharaoh that he is God, the Lord turns the Nile to blood. Because of Pharaoh's sin, God does this sign. And it's not surprising that God starts here in exposing the gods of Egypt as false. For one thing, this is the place where Hebrew babies were killed. If you remember reading in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And this is an incredibly graphic way that God chose to expose their cruelty in shedding the blood of Hebrew babies as the Nile itself became blood. This is not only a symbolic way of addressing exactly the the genocide that took place in Egypt. The Nile was also the main artery of the Egyptian economy. The Nile is the source of Egyptian life. In a desert, it produced irrigation for crops, and its annual flood washed rich, fertile soil onto the banks of Egypt every year, and it was essential for the survival of the country. So it's not surprising that the Egyptians actually worshipped the river. And God is very powerfully demonstrating that He is the one true God, and the idols of Egypt are powerless. This plague should warn us against trusting in our jobs, our pensions, our retirement accounts, or social security, or whatever it is for our provisions. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We are to live moment by moment, trusting in God for our needs. And if you are trusting in anything else, one day, God will expose your idol and you will have a choice. You can either learn to trust him in faith, Or you can push him out of your life and reject him, which is what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh, in seeing the Nile become blood, sees evidence that God can destroy Egypt. God is greater than any of the false gods he worships. And so what does he do? He tries to discredit the evidence By having his own false gods perform the same miracle. He has heard a message loud and clear from God that's unignorable. 
And instead of listening and repenting, he tries to discredit the message. So his magicians also find water and they make blood. Did they actually do something supernatural? Honestly, I don't know. There's a possibility that they were demonically empowered and that they did something supernatural. It's also possible that they were just deceptive. But really, it doesn't matter. Either way, Pharaoh finds a way to discredit the message from God that he doesn't want to believe. And that's the first step in his rejection of the message. After he's satisfied that Moses and Aaron don't actually have a power greater than he possesses, he does the second thing. He finds a way to work around the consequences of his sin. So this plague has threatened Egypt. And rather than recognizing the threat that God's judgment poses to the country, they find a way to work around the threat. So since they can't drink from the Nile, the people dig wells and they find water underground. And it's inconvenient, but this judgment is manageable. And I believe that we do this all the time. When we suffer for our own sin, we don't like to think that God is disciplining us or trying to teach us to trust Him. We just work a little harder to avoid the consequences of our sin. The Bible is clear. Not all suffering is a result of sin, but some of it is. And in this case, God is judging the sin of Egypt. But we don't like to think that God is like that. We don't like to think that God would ever do that in our own lives. For us, when we experience pain... We beg God for relief, but we don't like to think that we may be responsible for it. The question we should always be open to is, God, is there something that I need to repent of? Confession is a regular part of the Christian life. David prayed, search me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in me. If your suffering is not a result of sin and you seek God, I believe that you'll be able to have peace and joy in the midst of that suffering as you look for future healing when Jesus returns. But we should always have the humility to seek God to see if we have sinned. That's part of why Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts in the Lord's Prayer. Confession of sin is part of the Christian life. And if suffering is a result of sin, then you need to repent of your sin. But we don't like to do that. We like to just pretend that we're okay. that We can make this work, and so we just work a little harder. That's what Pharaoh did. The scripture says that a week went by. And things seemed like they went back to normal. The Nile continued to flow. The blood washed away. And perhaps Pharaoh thought that he had survived God's judgment, and the trouble was behind him. And so another confrontation follows. Read with me Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with, all, with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the words of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. My second point this morning is, a prayer answered, Pharaoh makes a deal with God. A prayer answered, Pharaoh makes a deal with God. This plague to modern readers seems really odd, almost comical. But the reality is the Egyptians associated frogs with a fertility goddess who was married to the god of the Nile. So it makes sense that after Yahweh exposes the god of the Nile as false, that he would expose this goddess who supposedly controlled frogs as false as well. Her image, which you can see in Egyptian artifacts, has a frog head. And one of her jobs was to control the frog population, which exploded every year when the Nile flooded. She was supposed to minimize these kind of natural pests. And by making the frogs multiply, God was demonstrating how powerless she was. This plague also may be significantly related to Pharaoh's command to kill Hebrew babies by throwing them in the Nile. See, a fertility goddess was the goddess that Egyptian women would pray to in the moment of childbirth to protect them. And it could be that this is specifically a judgment that corresponds to Pharaoh's command to kill Hebrew babies by showing this goddess to be powerless. God was showing the Egyptians that there was no safety for women or their babies by trusting in an idol. God had shown his own power by blessing the Hebrews with huge families in spite of Pharaoh's attempted genocide. He'd shown his ability to protect babies, particularly with Moses. Remember reading chapter 2 of Exodus. God's supernatural protection. And now God is showing that this false goddess of Egypt could not provide the same protection for Egyptian women and Egyptian babies. With these first two idols, I think it's critical to recognize that we often worship the same idols. And just as the Nile represents a god of economic prosperity, so this second Egyptian idol represents a god of controlling whether or not you have children. No matter if you want a baby or you don't want a baby, if you are pregnant and don't want to be, or you're, you're unable to conceive and you desperately want to, it is easy to make an idol out of controlling fertility. That's why abortion is fought over so passionately. Because it's an idol of control. The issue 
is trying to control your life. So let me be clear today. I do not want to stand here in a way that condemns a woman who has had an abortion. If you have had an abortion, we love you. The sad reality is, all of us, myself included, are guilty of worshiping idols. And all of us can find forgiveness and peace through Jesus Christ. My reason for talking about idolatry is not to condemn people who have sinned. Far from it. I am not in the place of God. I can't condemn people. I would be a hypocrite if I tried. Rather, my prayer is that all of us together will worship Jesus, the only one who will satisfy our deepest longings. No idol can fulfill you. No false god can bring you lasting peace and joy. Some people worship the idol of family and want babies because they believe that the warmth and love of a family will fulfill them. That's a false god. No family can fulfill you. Other people don't want children because they believe that they can find fulfillment in a career that will give them power and money. That's like the first idol, the idol of the Nile that brings economic prosperity. That will not fulfill you either. It is also a false god. So neither having a child and a beautiful family or having a successful career without children will bring you peace. Christians, we wrestle with idols just as much as non-Christians do. That's why the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Colossian church, to Christians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It is easy to look at a list like that and think, oh, you're fine. I don't do any of those things until you get to the end. And it says covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you wrongfully desire things that God has not blessed you with, that God has not given you? Are you failing to give thanks for what he has given you? And what American is not guilty of this sin? Then you worship an idol. And many times, this idol of coveting leads us to try to do what Pharaoh did after the first plague. We just work a little harder to fill our dissatisfaction. We put in a few more hours. We put a couple things on credit. We get another job. But the sad truth is, this will not work. We will remain empty while we worship a false god. When Pharaoh's idols are shown to be powerless, and there are frogs even in his bedroom, and there's no way he can claim this goddess has power, Pharaoh tries another strategy to deal with God. He begins to bargain with him. So just like last time, he has assured himself that his gods are able to do the same sort of miracle. He tries to discredit the message by saying, my gods are just as powerful. But unlike last time, the problem doesn't just dissipate and disappear as the river flows on. So in desperation, he calls Moses back because the frogs are driving him crazy. So he makes a promise, which he breaks, saying that he'll let the people go. And he asks Moses to pray for him. Very often, when we're desperate, our first step is to ask spiritual people to pray for us. 
But notice, he does not confess his sin. He is not asking for forgiveness. He is not saying he was wrong. All he wants is for the problem to go away. He's asking Moses to pray for relief rather than forgiveness. In the coming chapters, Pharaoh actually will acknowledge his sin. But here, he only wants to get rid of the frogs. And again, many times, our prayers are governed by the symptoms of our sin rather than dealing with the cause of our suffering. We pray when we suffer symptoms, but do we ever confess our sin that causes them? And so let me give you just one example here. We have a, a prayer list, and when people call in different physical, physical ailments, we always put them on the prayer list and we pray for them. You might think about somebody who has heart disease. If you call and, and say, I need prayer, we'll put you on the prayer chain, we'll pray for successful surgery, we'll pray that the doctors will find right medication and so forth. But, do we ever talk about sins of gluttony? Do we ever think that maybe we are responsible for the condition our body's in because we haven't treated them right? Do we learn to be thankful and content with food that is good for us, that will nourish our bodies? And let me be be clear here. I don't want to just pick on people who have an unhealthy relationship with food. People who are maybe guilty of the sin of gluttony. There are different ways that you can worship this idol too. You can worship pleasure through gluttony, or you can worship physical health by controlling everything you eat. And I believe that some people who try to control diet and therefore their health are just as guilty of ignoring God. The the Christian ethic of food includes both fasting and feasting. We fast because we long for God and we feast because we are thankful for Him. We both enjoy God's good gifts and we worship Him at the same time. We don't worship the gifts and neglect the giver. So as we think about the symptoms of our sin, let's be faithful to confess the sins that sometimes cause them. And again, I want to recognize there there are people who drop dead of heart attacks And they're the healthiest people in the world. It's easy to say, oh, I don't don't even need to think about that. No, the reality is all of us need to think about our sin. Christians, non-Christians, all of us need to come before God with an attitude of humility and seeking to worship Him with thankfulness and gratefulness. But Pharaoh, rather than worshiping God, remains kneeling at the altar of his idols. But he does ask Moses to pray for him and to remove the consequences of his idolatry. And he makes a promise, which he won't keep, And he promises to actually obey the command that God has given him. And this verse where God does according to the word of Moses is one of the most stunning in all scripture. And it should encourage each of us to pray. I think it's important to note that Pharaoh doesn't trick God. God God is not under the impression that, oh, he's given in. He'll do what I ask. God's told Moses from the beginning, Pharaoh's not going to listen. But God in his kindness does what Moses asks, although he knows that Pharaoh will break his promise. And sometimes, God in his kindness gives us what we ask for. And we, in turn, completely forget him. 
And this is exactly what Pharaoh does. He fails to recognize the power of God, and he fails to realize that that power will continue to confront him. And so for us, my prayer is that we would learn to pray for forgiveness and to seek God himself rather than just relief from our problems. So look with me today at the final sign that we're going to see. This is in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. My final point for today is a sign confirmed. Pharaoh ignores God. A sign confirmed. Pharaoh ignores God. Pharaoh is done denying. He is done cutting deals. And he is still disobedient. In the last plague, we see that although Pharaoh still will not see the truth, his magicians are now testifying to him that Moses must be speaking on behalf of God. This plague comes with no warning. After defying God through two plagues, there's no confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. It's just a further consequence that is undeniably the act of God. And even though Pharaoh remains hardened in disobedience, his magicians try to hold an intervention. They are testifying to him that God Almighty is doing something in Egypt, even if they don't fully understand what. Because Pharaoh's magicians can't fake this sign from God. Pharaoh can no longer pretend that his gods are as powerful as Yahweh. He can't do it anymore. God has shown himself to be greater. He can't lie to himself about this anymore. But now, even though he can't explain away God's power, even though he can't work around it or bargain with God, he still refuses to do what Moses asks. And the reality is, sometimes we get to a place where we can't help but recognize that God is speaking to us, that His Word is convicting us, and we still tell God, no, don't let that be you. As I close today, I think these three plagues and what Pharaoh does in response to them demonstrate a dangerous progression of failure to listen to the Lord. In the first step, Pharaoh tries to discredit God's word and to work around the consequence of his sin. In the second step, he hears God's word and he tries to make a deal with God without repenting. And then in the final step, he can't deny it, he can't deal with it, He just flat out ignores it. He knows what's true and he willfully continues in sin. As we'll see in the coming weeks, this will ultimately lead to Pharaoh's death. But my prayer is that we will listen to the word of God and find life. 
As I said last week, one of the challenges of preaching through these plagues is that they are full of God's just and righteous judgment. But I want to be faithful to all of Scripture and remind you, the Bible doesn't show God as always angry. He is not an angry God. Quite the opposite. God is sometimes righteously angry, and He should be, as we see in our text today. But the Scripture says God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 30 verse 5 says it this way, For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The power of God displayed in judgment is also shown as giving us life and blessings through Jesus. That same power. And the good news of Jesus is that we can be forgiven through His blood and welcomed into God's family. Celebrate the eternal joy of fellowship with Him. So I want to remind you, if you've read the Gospel of John, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John. Jesus' first miracle in chapter 2 is turning water into wine. Notice what this sign does. It, It shows that God has the same power over water that He has in Egypt, but the power to destroy in Egypt is shown to be a power that can bless. And later in this book, that wine is a symbol for Jesus' blood. So He's showing... This is the same kind of power that God had in Egypt. But don't think about that yet. Just stay with me in John chapter 2 in your mind. Remember that miracle. Remember that wedding. Remember the power that God uses to judge Egypt is used to bless a young couple at their wedding. And a wedding is one of the greatest pictures we have of joyful fellowship. This first miracle in John should call to mind. God has changed water in the past. He changed it to blood as a sign of judgment. But here, He shows that power can bless. Now think again. When Jesus institutes the Last Supper, He says, This cup is the new covenant in My blood, which is poured out for you. And this blood is not a sign of our judgment. It's a sign of our redemption. And the peace we can have with God through Jesus. Jesus has the same power. And He is our hope and our Savior. If you think about the second idol. The fertility idol. Remember this. Jesus has power over that too. What could show His power more than being born Of a virgin. God has power over life. Let me be clear. I don't want to set God up as a great God that just gives you things. God isn't promising to give you what you want. He's showing that He is the one in control. And He has the power to bless. But there are people who pray for children and God in His kindness says no. And there are people who struggle financially and they ask God for help. And for whatever reason, God says no. Sometimes we're tempted to treat God as if he's an idol. Remind you, an idol is set up to give you what you want when you want it. It puts you in control. Sometimes we treat God like that. We just ask him to give us what we want. But God is greater than that. 
He wants you to trust Him and to be satisfied in Him, not with His good gifts. So even His no's are acts of kindness. So as I invite you to spend time in prayer in a moment, let me remind you of the goodness of God. Let me urge you to trust Him. Knowing Him is the greatest thing in the world. Making excuses before God and trying to dismiss His call to repentance and faith will wear you out and fill your heart with anxiety. It is exhausting. It makes your gut heavy. That's why Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me ask, are you tired today? Then trust that Jesus bore your sin for you on the cross. This is a message for Christians as much as it is for non-Christians. Many of us, myself included, get caught into a trap of trying to make ourselves pleasing before God. We forget that God has made us His adopted children. And we run around like orphans, craving love. Forgetting that He has poured it out for us in the precious blood of Christ. So don't dismiss this invitation just because you've placed your faith in Christ. If your heart is heavy, let me urge you to talk to the Lord and to rest in His grace. If there is a sin in your life that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about, let me ask you, are you ignoring God? Are you trying to explain away His voice? Are you dismissing Him? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts. May we see you in all of your goodness and glory in the pages of Scripture. May we hope in Jesus. May we forsake our idols. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.